Galatians, we're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 25 will be our lesson. Let me read that to you. Galatians chapter 3, you'll need your Bibles. If you don't have one, that's okay. There's some in the back, on the back wall. We're in Galatians chapter 3. We'll also be looking in Genesis this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even, or likewise, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. It was put in place through angels by the intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. <coughs> As we get into this text, <clears throat> it's really important to remember that Paul is defending the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel. The good news that God is holy, God is pure, God is just, and yet we are sinners and in rebellion, and that makes for an impossible relationship. The scriptures declare that all have sinned, all has fallen short of the God's glory. And there is no one in and of themselves, of myself, of yourself, who is righteous, who is pure, who is blameless. But God is also loving. He's also just, but he's loving, gracious, and merciful. And he had a plan that would both satisfy his justice and extend love to sinners. Sinners who are in great need of his mercy. And God from eternity past had decided to come to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ to die an atoning death in our place as our substitute, rise from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And he calls on everyone to repent, to turn from their sins, and place their faith completely and solely on the finished work of Christ, and then they can be forgiven and made to be in a right relation with him. It is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Galatian churches, though, were under attack against, uh, by false teachers who were telling them that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary but not sufficient. In order to be just, in order to be declared just, forgiven, righteous, you need to have faith in Christ, but also works. In particular, circumcision, which is the right of entering into the Old Testament covenant, the law of Moses, the covenant law of Moses. Paul continued his defense. He started out in chapter 1 and 2 talking about his authority. Uh, he explained what justification is in verse 16 of chapter 2. And now he's continuing his defense on what is the truth of the gospel and why the gospel is by faith alone in Christ alone. And he brings up Father Abraham in chapter 3, the father of the Israelites. And just like 
Abraham, who is justified by faith alone, not by works, we too, he says, are justified by faith alone, not by works. And that makes us children of Abraham, heirs of the promise of Abraham. Okay? In fact, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, if you want to live relying upon the law to make you justified, your good deeds, your righteous deeds, helping a little old lady cross the street, if that's what you're counting on to be forgiven and to be made just, righteous, you're under God's curse because you can't keep God's law. Chapter 3, verse 10. But if you place your faith in a promise of God, you, along with Abraham, the father of the Jews, you'll receive the blessing, namely Christ himself. God himself, God promised to bless the Jews and the Gentiles, justifying them, forgiving them of their sins, making them right with God by faith. And he gave the Holy Spirit to, the, to us as a seal of the promise and to join us with Christ that's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that, makes us one with Christ and brings us into intimate union with Christ. Therefore, no one needs to be circumcision, circumcised in order to be made right with God. No one needs to follow the law in order to be made with right, made right with God. But we're all people of God, children of God, just like Abraham. Now, Paul goes deeper now. In chapter 3, in our text that we read this morning, he goes deeper and he says, listen, let's compare. If you guys want to compare the law being made right by the law, let's compare the law with the promise. The promise of Abraham and the law that was given to us by Moses. They were, they were clinging, they were teaching, cling to the law, and you'll be justified. I said, okay, let, let's talk about that. Let's compare the promise and the law. And that's what this text is all about. So first we'll see the promise that was given in the covenant, given to Abraham, then the purpose of the law, which Paul will talk about, and we're going to need to put our thinking caps on because we're going to talk about some concepts as well about the law. The promise of the covenant, the purpose of the law, and the provision of Christ. And now let me tell you in advance, it's really a two-part sermon, okay? When we get to the third part, and it's 4 o'clock, don't worry, it's almost over. Okay? So it's really two-part. We're just going to end on the third part. And you're thinking, all right, we're at, we're at three. I'm just giving you a heads up. So Paul begins his argument, his continued argument about the promise, and he says in verse 15, I want to give you a human example, brothers. Now, that's good. He calls them brothers because earlier he called them fools. So things are going in the right direction. He says, even or likewise similar with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And, and Paul is proving his point. Like Abraham, who trusted God, who believed in God, who was justified, that we too are justified by faith alone. And let me give you a human example, an illustration to explain this to you. It comes from the world of the law. If someone makes a man-made covenant, it's ratified, it's done. You can't go back. You don't change it. It's already been ratified. It's finished. It is a covenant. It is permanent. Now, scholars debate whether or not Paul is talking about uh, a, a Roman law kind of covenant, a, a, a Jewish, a Greek, because the word covenant can also mean will and testament. I kind of think he's, he's kind of throwing around both ideas because he's going to talk about the covenant with Abraham. But see, the Roman world, in their, in their covenant, their last will and testament can be changed as long as a person is alive. You can go around and change it as you like. You don't like your kids this week, you change it. But once you die, that was it. It was a no, it was done. You, you, you were stuck with it, right? Many families will know that because when grandma passes away and leaves her entire estate to her dog and not to the grandchildren that are, you know, entitled and all of a sudden a battle begins, but 
This is what grandma said. That's it. That's the Roman world. The Greek law was a little different. A will could not be replaced or revoked once it was recorded. That was it. It was a done deal. Yet the Jewish people had their own inheritance laws. And, and, and a way in which when they had inheritances, they had this will. It was irrevocable. And we see that in the prodigal son. If you remember the story, there was a man who had two sons. A younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Luke 15. In other words, this has been established. I know you're still alive, but it's irrevocable. You, you can't go back on it. It's, it's a testament. It can't be added or annulled. Although we're not really sure exactly what one Paul is talking about, but the point is really clear. Right? He says, a covenant, a, a will or testament is settled once it's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's a done deal. And Paul is arguing, listen, if that's the way human beings work their covenants, their will and testament, how much more for God's covenant? And he's, he's arguing what is called a fortiori argument, meaning from the greater to the less. It means if a man's will and testament covenant cannot be put aside, cannot be annulled, how much more the promises of God who is immutable, unchanging. What, what, what's true in a human court, how much more in the court room of almighty God. That's his argument. And interesting, in verse 16, let me move this along. Verse 16 he says about the promise, about the covenant, the one he is, he is talking about. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with the offspring promise, the land, the offspring, the lineage, all that promise of Abraham, you need to be. Okay, because it's very, very important. One of the most important chapters probably in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to put two verses up, but I want you to see this. God told Abraham in chapter 12, he was going to make him a nation. Then in chapter 15, it says this in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, God talking. Abram, his name was Abram, will turn to Abraham in in uh, 17, but let's go with Abraham, or Abram. I'm your shield, your reward, you shall be really great. Like, really? Abram's like, okay. I know what you told me a few years ago, but, oh Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? You're talking about heir of the king. You're talking about being a great nation. I've got no kids. Little doubt there. I'm not really, I'm getting old. I don't know, 75, 80 here, I don't know. Somewhere like that. And the word of the Lord came to him, oh, verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and remember of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, who he's talking about, Eliezer of Damascus, of his own household, this man won't be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abraham's like, really? So God said, look, come outside. Look toward heaven. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse 5, Genesis. Look See the stars, if you are able to number them. Obviously, he can't. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. There's the promise. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse 5. Verse 6, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, trusted in the promise of God. And it says, it was counted, reckoned, imputed to him as righteousness. We've been talking about that verse over and over. Okay? It goes on. 
God tells him in verse 9 of chapter 15, Genesis 15, 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham brings him, cuts them in half, and laid each half over against the other. God didn't tell him to do that. Abraham knew what time it was. You may be thinking, what is going on? There was a covenant about to take place. There was an agreement about to take place. Nowadays, we get 35 lawyers, six teams, and spend $80 million. Then it was easy. (laughs) Cut a couple animals in half. You go to jail for that now, right? Like, oh, we're just doing a covenant. Sorry for that dead bird. You know, but that... This is the way they did it back then. And what happens in those days is when a king would rule, would conquer a land, um, a tribe or a nation, the king, the ruler, who's called a suzerain, would, would, would take the conquered land, the people of the conquered land, and he would enter into a covenant with them. Okay? They're called the vassals. And he would tell the vassals, listen, I conquered you. I own you, but I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll care for you, but you have to serve me, and everything will go well. In fact, why don't you get some animals, cut them in half, and walk in between those animals. Therefore, you will know that if you defy me, if you don't follow and keep this covenant, that's what's going to happen to you. The king wouldn't go through, but the vassals would. And it was like a, 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 a denunciation, a self-curse upon them, as a people who were conquered, that they would keep the covenant that the king, the overlord, made with them. You following me? Chapter 15, verse 12. Adam, excuse me, Abraham knows what time it is. He knows that God's cutting a covenant with him. He gets the animal, cuts him in half. It says in verse 12, as the sun went down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then God speaks to him about the future. And then if you look down in verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down, When the sun had gone down, verse 17, and it was dark, dark sleep, darkness fell, dark. Behold, look what it says, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This is what's called a theophany. It's the manifestation of the presence of God has come down. And what is so remarkable, God doesn't say, Adam, excuse me, Abraham, wake up and walk through the pieces. You're the vassal. I'm the overlord. God himself comes down and passes on in between the pieces, signifying that the promise that was made to Abraham is unconditional, one-sided. And God was symbolizing that if he would break his own word, that if he failed to keep his promise, he would be cut in two, torn to pieces, slaughtered like butchered animals. It was an acted-out curse, a divine denunciation, guaranteeing that God would keep his promise to Abraham, or he would die. On that day, he made a covenant. The word covenant literally means to, to cut. And God now is sealing his promise like the cutting of the animals in this covenantal drama. That's why the sign of the circumcision, one of the reasons the the sign of the promise is circumcision, the cutting of the foreskin. And now Paul's point is that what God has promised and, and, and cut a covenant to do for Abraham that night was eternal, irrevocable covenantal promise 
full of grace, undeserved, unearned. And once God has done something, it cannot be changed. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be amended, added to once it is ratified, not even by the law. That's what he's saying. Okay? That's what he's saying. If we can be saved by cleaning our act up, if we can be in a relationship with God, forgiven of our sins, if somehow there's a scale in heaven that says if I might outdo my good works for my bad works, God will love and accept me. If that's the case, then God's a liar. Not keeping his promise. And now Paul goes on to identify the party of the covenant. Look at verse 16 again. The promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. Not to offsprings. Not referring to many multiple. He says, but to your offspring who is Christ. And, and, and Paul wants to make it really, makes it really clear that in, in Genesis, when he's talking about the promise, he's talking about Christ. Now, sometimes the word offspring can be what's called a collective uh, um, yeah, collective singular, like in verse 29, where he's talking about everyone. But here it's clear that it's Christ. That's the blessing. It's given to Abraham, but it's given to the seed, the one seed. It's Christ. It's him alone that multitudes of Jewish people and Gentiles are blessed. And praise God that the story is in the, you know, the, it's the story of the Bible. It's the story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. It's this seed that was promised. And do you know that the seed that was promised to Abraham really was first promised to Adam? Do you know that God created Adam and Eve and put him in the garden? That Adam was given a covenant promise? Adam, here is the land, here is the place to dwell with me in communion and fellowship with me. And you need to just have everything here is yours, but one thing, don't touch the tree. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Good and evil, don't do that, Adam. And if you do that, you get a curse. But if you don't, you'll be blessed. There's the marks of a, of a covenant, blessing and cursing of, a, of what's called a works covenant. That's what was going on. And what happened? Adam did not obey. Adam failed the test. And Adam rebelled against God, and he got what? The curse, which brought forth death. All right? But in the midst of this curse... God makes the promises, Genesis 3.15. If you don't know that verse, you, you need to. He says, God's speaking in the middle of chaos and, and, and rebellion. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on? The promise that was promised to Abraham has been promised to Adam. That a seed would be born of a woman who would be, yes, bruised as Christ is bruised on the cross. But ultimately, he will crush the head of Satan. And ever since Adam, everyone is a sinner and everyone's in need of God's mercy. God in his mercy promised Adam. God in his mercy promised Abraham. If you've been with us, we're studying Samuel. He also promised the seed of David. The lineage, this, this offspring will come. And he'll be the Messiah. He will be the king. And his name is Jesus. And what Paul is saying, the fulfillment of the covenant breaking Adam that was made in that covenant, that promised seed, who then was promised to Abraham, unconditional promise that was made to then David, unconditional promise, is here. His name is Jesus, waiting thousands of years. It is the Christ, the Messiah. 
2 Corinthians 1 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And Paul, I'm sure, he's such a, I know he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but what a theologian. He's probably thinking as I'm writing, as he's writing this, hey, wait a minute. Someone's going to say, what about Moses? What about Moses? What about the law? What about, what about the covenant God made with Moses? You keep talking about Abraham. You're mentioning Adam, the seed, the seed, the seed. What about the lawgiver? Verse 17. This is what I mean. Trying to, which the law came 430 years after the promise. Does that then annul a covenant previously ratified by God? So to make the promise void? He's going to talk about promise, promise, promise. What Paul says about the promise of the covenant is that it came before the law. Paul's anticipating some folks to say, okay, well, well we, we understand the promise, but the law came later. It, it, it supersedes the promise or, or somehow supplements the promise that you've got to add them together, faith and, and law. That's why he introduced this, this illustration. It's irrevocable. The covenant that was made of the promise to Abraham is irrevocable. It can't be invalidated by the law. The law could not replace the promise. That's his point. Once God made the promise, it can't change. So let's, let's bring this into practical ways or practical terms. Let's just say I make a covenant. I make a last will and testament that when I die, I leave everything to my children. Okay? Everything will be theirs. What do they need to do? They need to do, when I'm, di- when I'm dead, they need to go with the will and testament, believing that I made this promise, open it up, and get the $6 I had left to my name. It would be theirs. <laughs> but if I say, listen, I'm going to make a promise to you in a will and testament that when I die, you get everything, but you have to take care of me in my old age. You've got to come and move in with me and, 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 and take care of me as I'm getting older and older. Only then will you receive the money. See the difference? A gift promise needs only to believe, be believed, to be received, to trust the one making the promise. But a law wage must be obeyed to be received. I have to do it. The promise that was made to Abraham, that you are justified, made right, forgiven, was by faith alone. And the same way Abraham was justified was the way we are. It is a gift. Uh, The law can't change that. It doesn't matter what came first. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, this promise that was given, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. You can't have it both ways. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What's interesting in that text, in that verse right there, verse 18, the word gave. But God gave it to Abraham. You know what that word is? Charizomai. Comes from the word karas. Comes from the word grace. God graced it to Abraham. (laughs) Out of the abundance of, of, of the generosity of the heart of the one giving it, was it given to Abraham. The covenant with Abraham then takes precedence. And the law cannot invalidate the terms of the promise of Abraham that we are justified not by relying upon the law, your good deeds, you're your, your, your going to church, 
you're reading your Bible, and all the things that you may need to do and we need to do will never, ever, ever justify you before God. It is foolishness and folly to continue on that path, the promise of the covenant. Look at the purpose of the law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary now... He says in verse 20, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And here's Paul's anticipating this objection. If we're not justified by the law, if if our receiving of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, if we receive the Holy Spirit, had nothing to do with the law, if the very uh, inheritance of the promise is not dependent upon the law, but grace and promise, why bother giving us the law? Okay, why bother giving us the law? Now, here's why I want to take a little sidestep because I want to introduce this. We're going to talk about it more as we get into Galatians, okay? So let's talk about a little bit between, a little bit about the law, okay? Because the promise and the law has been given by God. They have two provisions. They work together, but they operate on totally different principles, right? Promise and faith works in law. The promise is about what God gives the law is a promise. The law is given to us about what we must do. And the language, if you look in the text, if you look in the scriptures, when the promise is given, it says, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's a promise. I will, God says, I will. When God gives the law, it's that thou shalt do. Thou shalt do. Okay? Different principles. They work together. We'll see that in a minute. But they're different principles. So here's the first question about the law of God. Was the law of God given, the law of Moses, so I believe the law goes back to Genesis, but the law, the Mosaic law, the covenant that they're talking about, the Mosaic covenant, was it given before or after the people of God were redeemed, rescued, and delivered from bondage? It was after. In Genesis 19, when Moses is going up to the mountain to receive the law, the entire context is set by God himself. Before you come up and get the law, Moses, excuse me, before I give you the law, Moses, let me say this to you. You shall say to the house of Jacob, God tells Moses, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I, God saying, did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Before God gives the Mosaic law, before he gives them what's contained in the law, he reminds them, I rescued you. I delivered you. I I carried you on eagle's eagle's wings. I provided and protected. I'm the one. Eagle means, uh, an eagle, the depiction of eagle is someone who who takes care of weak weak people and someone who also is a fierce bird. And they they would provide and they would protect and they would do all those things. And God says, you know what? I delivered you. You didn't fight the battle in Egypt. You didn't swim through the Red Sea. I delivered you by my strength, by my power. Not anything, not anything did you do for me to deliver you and rescue you. Then he says in verse 5 of 19, Exodus, now here's the law. Obey me. Salvation, deliverance, worship comes first. Then God says, here's my standard for you to live. Every philosophy, every religion, every self-justification is the other way around. 
I'm going to try hard. I'm going to try to do the right thing. Uh, and then God will somehow love and accept me. Maybe reincarnation, the second, third time around, I'll get it right. All right, some karmic debt you got to pay. Or go to Mecca or follow the rules. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel said, you see that right in the deliverance of Israel. I have fully saved you. I have brought you into the land. I completely accepted you and delivered you. Now obey me. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. And you got to understand that if we're going to look at the law. Because the law is not just simply something that puts us under the curse. The law is also something that has been graciously given to us. Anytime God comes and speaks to us, and reveals to us himself, it's an act of grace. Now, one more thing. When you talk about the law, the reform has done this. I think it's helpful. Some people don't. Whatever, you, you can decide yourself. When you talk about the law, there are three categories that we put the law under. That man, God didn't give it this way. They were under a theocracy, uh, which means they, they had a ruler and reigner who was God himself, and God just gives them all these laws. But there are three categories of laws, and maybe this will help you understand the Old Testament laws. Okay? So the first law let's talk about is the governmental law, the society laws, the civil laws. The civil laws were given, as I said, they were a theocracy. They lived under God, and God gave them all these laws. They didn't have any other laws. They were, you know, it was a law to themselves. They had their own community. Nothing like we have governments in those days. They live under just God. So he gave them civil laws. He was teaching them how to have relationship with each other in society, outlining procedures and, and punishment for crimes, things that we have today that the law record, shows us, the civil laws. Next, we have the ceremonial laws. And God gives the Israelites the ceremonial laws so that they can understand a little bit more about the character and nature of God and understand, through the ceremonial laws, who they were as a people. The laws talk about how the ceremonial law uh, was laid out on how we should worship God, sacrifices, part of ceremonial law, the food you can eat and not eat, the festivals, all these things were given to Israel. And then we have the moral law. So the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral laws like the Ten Commandments. Now, something very important you need to know about the, the, the laws of God. They are an expression of his very nature and character. I mentioned this before. It's very important you understand that. All of them. The ceremonial laws teach us principles about God, that, that he is holy and we are sinful. There needs cleansing, there needs washing, there needs sacrifices. He's holy, we're sinful. Even the civil laws that God gave to Israel teach us to be patient, to do justice rightly. And though we don't live under a theocracy anymore, we still strive in this government to honor God and honor the laws of our land. The ceremonial laws, the sacrifice, the food, and all those things, the Bible is very clear. Jesus fulfilled every one of the ceremonial laws. When he died on the cross, rose from the dead, all those laws pointed to his coming. They were like, get ready for the big game. And then Jesus comes. And yet we have God's moral laws are still a roadmap to live life in communion with God. Jesus took the moral law. If you read uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Servant on the Mount, the law says don't commit adultery. Said, but I say don't look at a woman lustfully or, or you commit adultery with her. The law says do not murder. I say if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. He kind of expands what it really means to be a believer and to live according to the standard God has set for us. Now, understand this. I want to make this as clear as I can. We are not under 
relying on or under God's law in the sense that I have to obey it, work really hard, do the best I can, and just hope that God will love and accept me. That's living under the law. That's what Paul is arguing for. But we're not over the law either. In the sense where I declare what's right, I'll decide what I should do. I will decide whether I should love, care, concern for others, and all the other things that, that, that are needed for us to live life together. I'm not under the law, therefore I'm over the law, and I'll make those decisions. We're not under, and we're not over. The moral laws become a road in which we walk. But listen, it, it, well, we're going to get into we get to chapter 5. I'm just saying just quickly here. It has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the trajectory, the aim of all the standard that God lays out for us in the New Testament is love. Empowered by the Spirit, trajectory is love. Love for God, love for others. Never should we love people and love God to get love, to be accepted, to be forgiven, but because we are, because of the perfect righteousness of Christ, because we're justified by faith alone, therefore, in gratitude and worship and praise, when our heart's been changed by the gospel, we obey him. David would call the law sweet like honey to his lips. So when you submit your life to Jesus Christ and you trust him alone, for his work on the cross, and you follow his ways. The law says don't lust, but the gospel, justified by faith alone, the gospel-shaped heart says, why would I lust when Jesus is my satisfaction, my supreme treasure? When the law says don't hate anyone, the gospel-shaped heart, out of gratitude and thanksgiving of all that's done by God for us, a gospel heart says, you know what? I'm going to love my enemy anyway. Why? Because I was once an enemy of God. And God, in his grace and mercy, loved me. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. Love requires direction and principle of operation. Commands are the railroad tracks on which the life, empowered by the love of God, poured into the heart by the Spirit, runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. Okay? So, law came after salvation. God has laws given to us. His moral laws still guide us. We don't rely upon them. We're not counting on that justification. They're, they're roadmaps for us. We're empowered by the Spirit, driven by love. Why then the law? Look, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The word added means comes alongside, showing sinners their real nature of their sins. It reveals our sins. It, it increases our sins. How? Very simply. is a reflection of God. So when God says, do not lie... He's saying out of his own nature, I don't lie, you should not lie. When he says, be faithful in your covenant, because he is faithful. When he says, be holy, it's because he is holy. It's a reflection of who he is. And Calvin says, it's like a mirror. And when we look into the beauty and majesty and holiness and purity of who God is, guess what? It reveals our transgressions. When he is the standard, the law is not the problem. We are. The law is diagnostic of our sin problem. I mentioned this before. When I saw the x-rays of my hip with all the arthritis, I was a diagnostic. I need a new hip. It wasn't the cure. It wasn't the cure. The problem is, family, the problem is we have so lowered the standard. That, that the, the, the standard, uh, the holiness, the, the perfections of God have been diminished in our culture. But when we really look into the scripture and we see 
the beauty and the holiness of God. And by God's grace, we see his light shine. We see we are under a curse. We are violating and rebelling against the God himself. What does it do? It drives us to Christ for redemption, for forgiveness. Look at 19b. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels and mediary, uh, but now a mediary implies more than one, but God is one. Listen, law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Let, let me just say something quickly about that verse. All Paul is saying is, listen, Moses was a mediator. A mediator stands in between two parties. The promise was given by God himself. Not that there's anything wrong with giving of the law through angels. The New Testament talks about it, Old Testament. But the point that Paul is making is one stands because God himself made the promise. So it, it supersedes, it stands out. That's all Paul's trying to point to. That, that Moses was a mediator, but the covenant made with Abraham is superior in part because it was given directly by God in contrast to the mediation between the parties. Look at verse 21. We have to keep moving. So the law is a mirror. It reflects the nature and perfect character of God. The law is a mirror. We look at it. We see our sin, our brokenness. Uh, the, is the law then? I mean, Paul is just throwing out stuff here that he knows what's going to, you know, uh, be thrown at him. Look at verse 21. Okay. If that's true then, if it's second to the promise, verse 21, is the law then contrary? Some people are going to say it's contrary to the promise. Certainly not. God forbid. If a law had been given that can give you life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scriptures teach us the law that God has given us that we're imprisoned under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The problem Paul wants to deal with is the more he talks about the limits of the law, the subordination of the law that some people are going to say, (laughs) some people are just going to say, it sounds like you're contradicting that the promise contradicts the, the law. The law contradicts promise. And he says, by no means. By no means. They, they function differently. They're giving for purposes. The law drives people to the promise, to trust in Christ for their righteousness. It does not give life. If it could, it would be, it, it would be pointless to give the promise if you can get righteous by the law. But the Bible says that if you want to rely upon the law, you're cursed if you don't keep the law. Look what it says. It imprisons you. Verse 19, verse 20. If the law, verse 21, if the law then contrary to promise, certainly not. For if the law had been given that can give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprison everyone under sin. No one, no one is not a sinner. That's what he's saying. Everyone's in prison under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive. So we're under the law, we're captive, we're imprisoned until faith would be revealed. That's everybody, family. If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Psalm 143, Isaiah 1.5, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah says, above all things, and is exceedingly corrupt. Who would know it? Romans 3, read that, 10 through 18. We're all held in captive by sin. In the prison of sin, guarded, imprisoned, and captured 
under condemnation, guilty, cursed because of sin until Christ came. Now look at verse 24. Then the law was our guardian. In order to be in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The Greek word is pedagogue. It has to do with not some of you might have schoolmaster, a teacher. It's, that's not the right word. It, it, is, it, is, it is a pedagogue. It is someone in, in a Greek family that was in charge of your child. Not only make sure he goes back and forth to school and do the right thing, but the discipline. They were harsh. In many cases, they were very harsh. And, and this, this law was given, this harsh taskmaster was given to reveal our sin, to put us under the curse, to, to show us and to reveal to us the seriousness of our sin. Why was the law given? There you go. But it's to lead us, and you this morning, me this morning, to trust in Christ. Phil Reichen writes this, the law, and he sums it up for us, and we'll move to our last point. He sums it up, he says, the law reveals sin by showing that our misdeeds are transgressions of God's law. Sinners that we are, sometimes it actually increases our sin, thus imprisons us in our guilt. The more the law imprisons us in our sin, however, the more it shows us our need for grace and thus drives us to Christ. Increases our sin so that we see and runs to Christ. Now let's look at the provision. I'm going to borrow one verse from Pastor Chris next week. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here's the question. How does, I'm going to end with this question. How does the coming of Christ, the offspring, the seed, the one who fulfilled the promise, no longer imprison us in sin, release us from captivity of sin, release us from the harsh pedagogue of the law and make us righteous, justice, just before God. Make us children of God, as this verse tells us. Let me explain that to you in this way. Family, remember this. The Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam, works-based righteousness is still in force today. Okay? Before you throw things at me. And anyone who wants to be just before God has to keep the law. The only way of salvation is perfection is by doing and obeying God completely. That is and always will be the standard by which we are made right with God, justified, is by following, completely obeying the law of God. And when you don't, Romans 5, sin came into the world through Adam, and death reigned through Adam, therefore death reigned to all of us, because we've all sinned from Adam to Moses, all are sinners. Just like Adam, who disobeyed and got cursed, so are we who violate the law of God. Righteousness is still the standard. We have to obey God completely. We have to follow his laws completely. So the question is not, is perfect obedience necessary to be made right with God? That's not the right question. The right question is, whose obedience is necessary for us to be made right with God? Because the standard is the holiness of God. The standard is perfect perfection of God. The question isn't, do we lower the standard? The question is, whose work, who obeyed, you or Christ? Genesis 15. Remember what happened? Pieces were spread. 
God comes, he made a promise to Adam, makes a promise to Abraham, and it says the sun went down, there was dark dreadfulness over, the, over, the, over, over Abraham, there was darkness, there was, there was a sleep, and God himself walks in between the pieces, making an oath, swears by himself, Hebrews tells us, and he's saying to Abraham, I will bless you, even if it means being torn to pieces, not only will I put myself under my own divine curse, I will pay the penalty if you fail to keep the covenant because you're not going to be faithful, but I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to bless you. Not only will I make myself accountable to pay the penalty, but if you fail to keep your end, I'll absorb the debt in your place. It's a one-sided covenant that God denounces upon himself. I will bless you. I will work this out. I will put myself in between these pieces. You won't be faithful but I'll be faithful even if I have to die. No other religion says that. No other religion does the king and Lord walk through the pieces in order to be justified, in order to bring a covenant to its people. Abraham knew something's not right. As darkness fell upon Abraham, do you know centuries later, darkness fell on the cross. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says, Darkness fell on the cross on Calvary's hill where Jesus died. And on that cross, as darkness fell, Jesus cried out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah says that he was cut off from the land of the living. The curse, listen, the the glory, excuse me, the glory of the gospel is that God assumed the covenant curse himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God was cut off not by breaking the covenant, by making the covenant. And on that night, Jesus took that cup. What did he say? The cup that is poured out for you is my blood poured out for the new covenant. And Jesus is saying in that, in that Lord's Supper, in that time of fellowship, in the time of pointing to his death, God my Father said to your father Abraham, I promise unto death. I promise unto death. And Jesus is saying, I am here to pay the price. Jesus, who hangs on a cross. Only Christ lived the perfect life. Only Christ lived the perfect life required to be justified. Only Christ can deliver us from the curse belonging to the lawbreaker because he was made a curse for us. Only Christ can set us free from the prison to which the curse has brought us to. Only Christ can deliver us, listen, from the law's harsh discipline because Christ alone lived the perfect life and died a death. The band, you can come up, and let me just say one last thing as they get ready to play. Adam was given a clear command. Listen, family. Adam was given a clear command, and he failed and received the curse. We are given clear commands. We fail. We, too, receive the curse. But the last Adam, his name is Christ, was given a clear command and obeyed it completely and became a curse in our place. And therefore, his perfect righteousness gains for his children the right to eat from the tree of life. Are you trying to justify yourself this morning? Are are you obeying the law, trying to justify yourself, or are you not obeying and being a law unto yourself, still trying to justify yourself? Look to Jesus this morning. Look to Jesus. See him faithfully and, and fully completing the law's requirement for you, dying in your place, rising from the dead, cut off from the land of the living, yet three days later again, empty tomb to bring you into right relationship with Christ. Let's trust Christ today.
Let's lean on Christ. And maybe today's the first day you've ever trusted Christ. Let it be as we sing this next song to worship him, to trust him, to rely upon him. Father, thank you for the work you're going to do right now in our hearts as we worship you. Father, may we just praise you and may our lips sing this song, not to one another, not to the band, but to you. May you open up our hearts to worship you and to receive your blessing. You promised Abraham, his name is Jesus this morning. And it's in his name we pray, amen.